Chapter 11 of Beyond These Voices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Beyond These Voices by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 11. It was Saturday, and they were at River Mead one of those ideal places that seem to have been raised along the upper Thames by an enchanter's wand, rather than by the vulgar arts of architect and builder, so exquisitely do they harmonise with the landscape that enshrines them. No hideous chimney, no mammoth reservoir, no thriving metropolitan high street defiled the neighbourhood of River Mead. All around was rustic peace, green meadows and blue waters, amidst which there lay gardens that had taken a century to make, grass walks between new hedges and labyrinths of roses, and in the distance purple woods that melted into a purple horizon. It was a place that people always thought of as steeped in golden sunlight, but not even in the glory of a midsummer afternoon was River Mead quite as lovely as on such a night as this, when Claude and Vera strolled slowly along the river path in the silver light of a great round moon hung in the blue deep of a sky without a cloud. The magic of night and moonshine was upon everything. The mystery of light and shadow gave a charm to things that were commonplace by day, to the white balustrade in front of the drawing-rooms, to the flight of steps and the marble vases above which the lighted windows shone golden the gaudy yellow light of indoor lamps shamed by the white glory of the moon. The windows were all open, and the voices of the card-players travelled far in the clear air. They could even hear the light sound of their cards, manipulated by a dexterous hand. Everybody was playing bridge. Everybody was absorbed in the game, winning or losing, happy or unhappy, but absorbed except these two. Everybody except these two, who had been missing since ten o'clock, and the great stable clock had sounded its twelve slow, sonorous strokes half an hour ago. They had not been wanted. The tables were all full. Two or three of the players had looked round the room once or twice, and, noting their absence, had exchanged the quiet smile the almost imperceptible elevation of arched eyebrows with which, in a highly civilised community, characters can be killed. For Lady Oakhampton, she who had more than once sounded the note of warning, and who should have been on the alert to see danger signals, from the moment the tables were opened and the players seated, the world of men and women outside that charmed space where cards fluttered lightly upon smooth green cloth, four eager faces watching them as they fell, had ceased to exist. She was not a stupid woman, but she had a mind that moved slowly, and she could not think of two serious things at once. For her, bridge was a serious thing, and from tea-time on Saturday till this Sunday midnight, bridge had occupied all her thoughts to the exclusion of every other consideration. Smiles might be exchanged, and eyebrows raised when, on Sunday morning, 
Claude Rutherford carried off her niece two miles up the river to a village church, which by his account was a gem in early Gothic that was worth more than the two miles sculling a light skiff against the current. But Lady O'Campton was too absorbed even to wonder whether there was anything not quite correct in the excursion. Why should not people want to see the old church at Allersley? It was one of the lions of the neighbourhood, and counted among the attractions of River Mead. Lady O'Campton's cards on Saturday night had seemed to be dealt to her by a malignant fiend, an invisible devil guiding the smooth white hands of human dealers. She had lain awake till the Sunday morning bells were ringing for the early service to which good people were going, fresh and light of foot, with minds at ease. She had tossed and turned in her sumptuous bed in a feverish unrest, playing her miserable hands over and over again, with the restless blood in her brain going round and round like a mill-wheel, or plunging backwards and forwards like a piston-rod. There had been no time to think of Vera and Claude. She could think only of Sunday evening, and of her chance of revenge. It was not that she minded her money-losses, which were despicable when reckoned against the price of Oakhampton's autumn sport. Two thousand pounds for a grouse moor and a salmon river, an outlay of which he talked as lightly as if it were a new hat. The money was nothing. He would give as much for an Irish setter as she lost in an evening. But the vexation and humiliation of a long evening's bad luck were too much for nerves that had been strained to snapping point by many seasons of experimental treatment all over Europe, and the mistress of Rivermead had left her visitors to amuse themselves at their own sweet will until dinner-time on Sunday evening, while their hostess slept in her easy chair by the open window of her morning-room, soothed by the lullaby of the stream running down the weir, and sweet airs from a garden of roses, such roses as only grow in a riverside garden. The choice of amusements or occupations after luncheon on the Sunday afternoon was somewhat limited. Two girls and their youthful admirers played a four-handed game of croquet. A middle-aged spinster, who had been suspected of tricky play on Saturday, trudged a mile and a quarter to the little town, where there was a church so old-fashioned as to provide a substantial afternoon service for adult worshippers. Most of the masculine guests wrote letters, or read Sunday papers in the billiard-room, or slumbered in basket-chairs on the river lawn. Vera and Claude did nothing out of the common in strolling up the hill to the wood, where they lost themselves during the lazy two hours between the end of a leisurely luncheon and the appearance of tea-tables in the shady drawing-room. Coming back a little tired after her idle afternoon, Vera sat on a sofa in the darkest corner of the spacious room, by the side of a comfortable matron, an old friend of her aunt's, with whom she exchanged amiable truisms and mild opinions upon books, plays, and sermons, a kind of talk that demanded neither thought nor effort, while Claude sat among a distant group, bored to death, but smiling and courteous. After tea there was the garden till dressing-time. Everybody was in the garden, 
so it was only natural that these two should be sauntering in lanes of roses, exchanging light talk with other saunterers, and lingering a little at the crossing of the ways, where the slow drip of a fountain made a coolness in the sultry evening, or stopping at an opening in the flowery rampart to look across the blue water towards the grey old tower and listen to the pensive music of church bells. These two had been alone all day, without interference or espial from chaperone aunt, unconscious of observation, if they were observed, alone in this little world of summer verdure and sunlit water, as much alone as in a pathless wilderness. All that long summer day they had been alone, talking, 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 as only lovers talk. And now, at midnight, they were still alone in the garden that was changed in the moonlight, changed from the warm glow of colour to the silvery paleness and mysterious shadow, in which the prolific clusters of the Felicité Perpetuelle looked like the ghosts of roses. If it were sin to love, the sin had been sinned, from the hour in which he had drawn the confession of her love from the lips that he kissed for the first time. She had tried to hold him off, tried to keep those lips unprofaned by the kiss of guilt. They were alone in the wood on the hill that fatal Sunday afternoon, safe only for the moment, since the woodland path was a favourite walk with visitors at Rivermead. But he had drawn her from the footpath into the shade of great beech trees, and they were alone. He had kissed her, and she had submitted to the guilty kiss, and she knew that she was lost. Did she love him? She whispered yes. With all her heart and soul? Yes. Could she be happy if he left her forever? No, no, no. Could she give up all the world for him, as he would for her? The lips that he had kissed were too tremulous for speech. She hid her face upon his breast and was dumb. The die is cast, he said in a low, grave voice, and now we have only to think of our future. Our future? Henceforth they were one, united by a bond as strong as if they had been married before the high altar in Westminster Abbey, with all the best people in London looking on and approving the bond. Nothing else could matter now. They belonged to each other. He was to command, and she was to obey. It was almost as if, in the moment of her confession, her personal entity had ceased. In all those hours of delicious intimacy, in fond imaginings of their future life, the thought of her husband had never come between her and her lover. And tonight, when she thought of Mario Provana, it was only to tell herself that he had long ceased to care for her, and that it would not hurt him if she were to vanish out of his life. Provana had been gone more than fourteen days, and his cabled messages told her of delays and difficulties. The financial crisis was more serious than he had anticipated, and he would have to see it out. He had sent her several messages, but only one letter, 
a kind letter, such as an uncle might have written to a niece. But it seemed to her there was no love in it, not even such love as he had lavished on his daughter. There was nothing left of the love that had wrapped her round like summer's sunlight, the strong man's love that had made her so proud of having been chosen by him, so tranquil in the assurance of her happiness that nothing could change. The change had come before they had lived a year in that great gloomy London house, when she had been less than two years a wife. It was after parting with Claude in the garden, and creeping quietly up to her room in the second hour of the new day, while doors were beginning to open, and voices to sound as the card-players bade good-night, it was in the stillness of the pretty guest-chamber that Vera began to think of Mario Provana, and the impassioned love that had ended in a frozen aloofness. He had said, Let them be no pretending. Could he have told her more absolutely that his love was dead, and that no charm of sweetness in her could make it live again? She had made her poor little attempt to win him back, and it had failed. What more was left but to be happy in her own way? End of chapter 11